Welcome back, everybody, to Uncensored CMO. This week, I am recording this all the way from New York, and I'm at the NBC Universal headquarters speaking to none other than Yusuf Chuku, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Planning and Commercial Impacts. I got that in one go. So not only do I want to find out what it is and what it does, but I want to find out about all about strategy, how he got into strategy, how he ended up in New York, what we can understand about audiences, and in particular, representation and why that matters and also the importance of empathy. So without further ado, let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Yusuf. Let's start at the beginning, right? How did you get into strategy and how, how did you end up where you are today? I, I always feel bad talking about it, not because not, not it's a bad story, but just because I, I'm always conscious that it's so much harder to find work for young people today. I'm sounding like my granddad. But like, I grew up at a time when you could kind of fall into advertising. I, I was raised the son of Nigerian immigrants in the UK. For Nigerian kids in London, there were only about four occupations. Doctor, uh, engineer, I think accountant. Uh, or you could stay in academia and just collect like master's degrees. So I decided that like finance, which was close to accountancy, might be a legitimate career a young Nigerian boy growing up in London. So, uh, and my parents thoroughly approved and uh, it helped that I subsequently married a doctor. So I'd managed to tick that bit off as well. Um, and so, yeah, I went off to university, studied economics and was headed to the world. That's amazing. I, th- I think we did the same. I did economics and finance and uh, did an internship at an investment bank. And I think you did as well, didn't you? Uh, yeah. Yep. So, we, so we both found ourselves in the kind of creative industry yes. somehow. Yes. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Cause it, 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 and no disrespect. And so, some of my best friends are bankers. Um, and I mean, uh, I like not, the caveat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> But like it, it was not. I was not built for that world. I I I often like tell. So I was I was in an interview, and they literally were asking me what motivated me, and I gave like a really really long answer about learning new things and all this sort of stuff. And I, I remember like they're all sat in front of me and they're looking at me like I'm crazy, and then one of them's like, "What about money?" And I was like, "Oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah. money yeah I like that." He goes, "No no, do you love money?" And that was like, uh, 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 you know, he probably was a dick, but actually that was like, re- that really helped me kind of, because I, I was I was like, I thought about it in the room and I was like, nah, yeah. I, I don't love it. I mean, I want, I want it and it can, I can buy some cool stuff. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't love it. And he was like, well, if you don't love money, then you can't work here. Like it's, it's the love of money that drives us to do what is necessary to make money. And if you don't love it, you won't do what's necessary. And I'm like, yeah, you're probably right. It's funny, I, I, I almost the same experience as you. I looked around me, I was working at a big merchant bank in the city and doing the same thing every day. And there was no sense of team or like being part of something. Everyone was just, you know, managing their own positions and yeah. maximising the profit for that month and yeah. very felt very soulless, didn't yeah. it? And oh, yeah, oh, awful. And so, I mean, I mean, I guess like you, like... I had a career crisis at a very young age because, yeah. like, that was what I was going to do. I knew I knew I was going to work in finance. So, in fact, I knew I was going to be a trader aged, like, 13, 14. So, like, everything up until that point. I was reading the FT at 16. I was, like, I was so ready for this. So, it, it like, when you realise that, like, all your plans are, like, not going to work out and you're 21, it's a little bit... So how do you go from there then? You set yourself up, you know, you spent all that time reading the FT, getting ready for this finance, you know, finance career and investment banking. How do you make the jump from there then to creative? So I had an amazing summer, like hanging out. And then slowly people started getting on with their lives. You know, people went off, started postgraduate degrees. Other people started their graduate jobs. At that point, I was like, oh, I kind of maybe need to find a job. 
And so I actually, funnily enough, took a job selling uh, uh, media space at The Independent, uh, which I did for a few months. I was very bad at it. But, but interestingly, during that period, I saw a job advertised for a TV buyer. I had no idea what TV buying was. I had a friend who was a fashion buyer, and he was traveling the world buying sneakers. And so, or trainers for the London listeners. I, 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 so I was like, yeah, 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 I watched a lot of TV. And so I thought it was like to go Why buy TV? TV shows for networks and stuff. So I was like, I'll do that. How hard could it be? So I turn up at this interview at Zenith. Obviously, it became very apparent. I had no idea what I was talking about because I'm talking about buying shows. And, and they were like, ooh, you probably won't be very good at this. But have you thought about planning? And I was like, town planning? <laughs> like, no, no, like planning, strategy. I'd never heard of it. I looked into it. Uh, uh, it felt like I was right-sized for it. It, it, it. There was an element of it that, that required, like, sort of quant skills, which, like, I had through my degree in economics. I was like, okay, that, that bit I could do. But it also, it meant working with creative people. And those were my best friends in, like, outside. Right? My friends were photographers, designers. And so I'm like, oh, I could do that. And to top it all off... I got to work, wear trainers, sneakers to yeah. work. I'm like, what's not to love? <laughs> so, literally, I just went, I think I'll work in advertising. And that was that. So talk me through your first few years and what, what, what kind of campaigns did you work on? What, you know, what, what did you get to do as a strategist? So it's funny because I ended up joining BMP DDB. I really wanted to be both a creative planner and a media planner. And that was not allowed at the time. Like you had to pick a lane. And so I picked media because it felt like it was an interesting space. It was like early days of the internet. I remember showing a TV by the internet. This is when was it? 90, 95, 90, yeah, maybe late 95. So he's at my, he's at my uh, desk and we're typing in HTTP and backslash. Watch. And then the dial-up kicks what, in. Yes, yeah, so then we're waiting and I'm like, oh, America's come online, so it's going to take a bit of time. And so we're sat I there. remember that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're sat there and nothing happened. Yeah. He was like, yeah, it will never work. <laughs> and then he walks away, dismissed the internet just like that. But like, it felt like an exciting place to be. And it kind of was. I was working on like Budweiser campaign at the time. I, I did some stuff on HMV, worked a lot on like PlayStation and Nintendo. So just like uh, working on really cool brands, launching stuff. And, and I, I just really enjoyed thinking about the context in which advertising like lived. And, and so, like, media planning itself was all about, like, choosing kind of uh, uh, what kind of media channels to use and, and, and sort of some of the implementational planning that went alongside that. But, like, the bit that fascinated me was this idea that advertising didn't live in a vacuum. And, and, and I, I remember my sort of creative planning partners, like, in, in, in their world, there was, like, the brand and then there was a the consumer. And the messaging travelled through this void into a consumer's head. And I was always like, but, like... No, they're like, there's other stuff in the world. Like there's all this noise and they care about other stuff. And so for our advertising to land, we, we can't just pretend that that stuff, that noise or culture, as we call it now, doesn't exist. We kind of have to like harness it and understand it and like chart a course. And how do you kind of use it to, to, to amplify what you're trying to do? And so I just became obsessed about kind of understanding culture and yeah. brand's place and culture. And it's quite unusual to do a strategy role in media and in creative as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah it, they, they do feel like two tribes that they, like, they don't talk were. to each other. They and... always were. And it, it wasn't, to be honest, it wasn't until I got to Naked that, like, we had permission to just, like, do both. Yeah. And so, for me, it was just like, finally, yeah. I'd found a place where I could 
talk to both things. Because in my day, I do so many, um, I have so many relationships with media companies and they don't talk about the role of the creative. Yeah. And it, it astonishes me. And I'm like going, hello, everybody. The, you know, what you air yeah. is as important as how much you air it, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, it's almost, are they really? Yeah, it amazes me. But like, yeah, yeah no, you're, you're absolutely right. In economics, like there's a principle of like ceteris paribus, everything mm-hmm. remains equal. And and it's weird. We, well we, done, we, by the way. Congratulations oh, for remembering <laughs> that. It's the only thing, three years at Manchester, the, the only, only thing the, I remember. The only thing I remember was the capital asset pricing model. <laughs> <laughs> what use is that? Anyway. <laughs> but like, I, it's funny because in advertising, I was thinking about, we have that same sort of thing where depending on the discipline that people occupy, they just assume that everything else remains yeah. equal. And so uh, we kind of go, ah, it doesn't, messaging, whatever. Like, this is like how we need to think about like impressions and how many times we need to hit. I'm like, yeah, but what you're saying, really important. But at the same time, there'll be people who just only care about the messaging and the creative. And I'm like, no, no, context yeah. fucking matters. It like, does, it does, not it? And the thing I never understood is, because you know, my career is all client side, so I never, never worked in a media agency or a creative agency. But when you do your media buying, it's like going to be 85% of the, of the nation are going to see it 25 times. And, and you leave thinking, really, this is amazing, right? Everyone's going to be talking about my campaign. Like, they're going to see it 25 times. And then, like, no one mentions it. And you're like, what's happened? You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, I got me. The only um, the thing I used to get the most joy from was hearing people talking about things I'd worked on because that was a proof that you'd impacted culture. Right, that, that for me was like, yeah. yeah. The culture is so important, isn't yeah. it? Let's come back. I want to come back to that in a minute, actually, and how you understand audiences and what brands can learn from audiences. Um, but 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 complete the story for me. Like uh, two Englishmen sat here in, in, in NBC here. It was quite entertaining. But why are there so many English people in planning in the States? Yeah, I, it's really, like I, I, I didn't know it was a cliche till I arrived and everyone went, oh, God, another Brit planner. I was like, oh, it's a thing. And and yeah, and, and it's it's a thing for a very deliberate reason. Like planning was invented in London at two agencies simultaneously. It's so a little bit of planning history, like uh, uh, Stanley Pollitt at, at BMP DDB had come to the conclusion that he needed to create a department that sat somewhere between creative and, and account management, like literally was the voice of the consumer at the table. And then Stephen King over, at, and not the other Stephen King, the advertising Stephen King, over at JWT, pretty much had the exact same thought. His vision of it like leaned a little bit more research, but like same same principle. So, so both agencies created these planning departments and, 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 and that was kind of, uh, account planning, which is a hybrid between account management and media planning and all that sort of stuff. And so uh, 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 they created this role. It, it had a massive impact on the quality of, of, of British advertising. And then as 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 the story goes, J- Jay Chiat saw this, Jay Chiat of Chiat Day, and was like, hmm, I think we need a bit of that. And so hired a British planner for Chiat Day. Chiat Day went on to create Got Milk and all these other famous campaigns. And, and, and he put it down to strategy being the thing that made the difference. And so a whole load of agencies in the US went, hmm, we need one of those. And so they flew to London and they picked themselves up British planners. And, and that tradition kind of carries on to this day. Yeah. And here you are, at the, what, the biggest media organisation yeah. in, in the US? Yeah, yeah. Wow. What's the difference in terms of the role now 
you know, being within a media organization, obviously, that makes a lot of the most famous programs, not just in the US, around the world, you know. I mean, it's funny, actually, I was going to um, ask what some of your favorite, you know, favorite programs are. Um, I've got two young daughters. Well, sorry, sorry, I keep saying two young daughters, and they're teenagers. They'll tell me off, you know. <laughs> Daddy, we're really grown up now. But anyway, but they're obsessed with Friends, you know oh, what I mean? Yeah, and it's yeah. like, it's really funny. I mean, Friends aired just, uh, I think, just after I left university or whatever, but yeah. it, it was a thing at the time. Yeah. Amazing how some of these, you know, some of these shows that are still still going now, 30 I, years on. Uh, you're, yeah, and, and, and isn't, we, we see it on, on our platform, Peacock. And actually, uh, there's a, uh, um, I have a kind of a, a theory behind it. And, it, and it's borne out by kind of like a lot of the viewing behavior. But when I was growing up, I was very into music, right? And so I, I ended up, I say, inheriting my dad's record collection. Basically, I stole it during the divorce and the confusion. <laughs> but like, discovered like James Brown. And I was listening to a lot of hip hop at the time. So I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, this, this is the beat from like, and, and so like, just, just opened up this world of like jazz and funk. And so I'm playing stuff to my dad going out. And he's like, yeah, we used to listen to that back in the 60s and 70s. But I'm like listening to it like it's new. And that's been like, youth culture has always done that. They've also like found inspiration from the past and like, you know, taken it up yeah. as their own. And I was, I was obsessed by like kids dressing up like they're 90s ravers. I'm like, oh shit, I remember that the first time. <laughs> Those tracksuits never looked good then. I like, don't, certainly don't look good now. So it, it's, it used to, it's happened in fashion and music. I think the advent of streaming and the ability to access back catalogue programming has also meant that like you're seeing a generation of young people doing the same thing with television viewing. And so they are finding, you know, my, my, my kids are the same. They're watching The Office, but for the first time, this is not a retro thing. My daughter like, likes Cheers. Yeah. <laughs> Who would imagine, yeah. right? <laughs> and so like they're able to like indulge in this stuff from the 80s and 90s, not as a kind of like, oh, I'm, I'm nostalgia. It's like, no, no, I'm discovering yeah. this for the first time and loving it because it's quality. And, and, and that, that streaming has enabled them to do that. There is... Um, like my, my, one of my current favorite shows is Poker Face. I love it. And uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's like uh, uh, the, the, the lead in it. It's on Peacock, by the way, I should say. For those that don't know where to find it. But the, um, she basically solves crimes, but she's like, she has this ability to see when people are lying. But what, 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 what's interesting is she does it in this kind of like bumbling, kind of like not, not smart, but like things just stick it and she bugs her. And, and so we were watching it and, and my wife's like, Oh my goodness, she's just like Columbo. I'm like, you're right. She is. And my daughter was like, what's Columbo? I'm like, oh, I'll put it on next. Yeah. And so we watched an episode of You've watched Columbo? Brilliant. I thought that was just us. I hadn't realized that it popped. And like, we could see like a whole load of people watching Columbo as a result of like That's poker cool. face. And I was like, of course, because we can do that now. You can find the source material for shows that you love and go back and like discover new ones. And just so this, this, this ability, particularly for like Gen Z to like discover stuff for themselves, which they couldn't do before, like, yeah. but yeah. it makes that yeah, possible. It does, doesn't it? It's really interesting. I mean, I know you've read Orlando's books, haven't you? Yeah. One of the really simple frameworks he uses in there, he, he, he describes kind of character, instant and place as the three ingredients to a great ad. But actually it's the same with all these programs, isn't it? You've got characters that you can relate to. You've got an incident, something happens, and then you've got a familiar place, whether it's set in a, you know, kind of New York apartment or, you know, the Cheers bar or whatever, isn't it? And it's, you know, as long as you've got good acting and good storylines, you know, we, you know, it's not more than that, isn't it? In a lot I, of cases. You know, st stories are stories. Like we, we, I was talking about, we, we've been telling ourselves stories since like we could scrawl things on the side of caves. 
and and we'll be doing it well into the future. And a story's ability to travel is the thing that never ceases to amaze me. We, we did some work a year or so ago, I think it was now, where we we were looking at like essentially like the, what what was very specific small stories from different parts of the world, but like their ability to kind of attract a global audience. And so it's always funny whenever we, we think about appealing to people and you always think about like lowest common denominator as like, okay, well, and the more, you, know, you can tell these things that people, everyone kind of understands. But what's interesting is when you get really narrow and really specific is actually at those points that people really start to see themselves and understand that. So this a story might be set a million miles from where I live in a, in a, in a situation that just does not resemble mine in any way. But people, their motivations, like all of that, I totally get. And 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 so as a result, like we we, we find ourselves drawn to these stories because often but that's the power. The power of stories, I find. I mean, we'll talk about in a minute about representation, but, but the power of stories is you you can start living someone else's yeah. life, can't yeah, yeah, you? Totally. And actually, it, get, it allows you to see things that you wouldn't have seen if you hadn't have done it. Um, talk to me a little bit about audiences, because I know you know how how, do, how in your role, how do you understand your audiences? And you know, you talked about fandom as well, didn't you? Oh yeah, yeah, as, yeah. As, as a concept, which I quite like. Yeah, 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 yeah. When I think about kind of what we do as an organization, NBC Universal, we obviously create premium content, invest billions every year in, in, in creating it. But w- there is this, this special relationship that exists between the content and audiences. And um, I, I have to confess that we probably, as an industry, haven't invested enough time and effort in understanding that. We just kind of all accept it as truth, because it, it's true. But we, we, we haven't spent enough time really dissecting it and, 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 and understanding it. Uh, we, as NBCU, have done that. <laughs> like we've invested the time and effort and money to understand the relationship between our, our, our content and audiences. So, for example, we worked with a company called Coherency, uh, and they have a thing called Love Quotient. Which it's based off a lot of the principles in relationship science, and so you then apply those to the like people's relationship with brands. Um, and what w- what we found with our content is this this really passionate, strong relationship. The shorthand for it has really been fandom, of which there are kind of like three broad elements of fandom. Part of it is about self-care. Like when I watch stuff, I I just feel better. It's cathartic. I just like, I can lose myself in it and all that sort of stuff. But there's also a piece of it that's around like identity. Like I understand more about myself through it. It becomes a, a, a representation of me. And then the, the, the third element is, is really about how it enables me to connect with other people. Like there's this human connection, like we are fans of the same thing. So therefore we are, I mean, yeah. skateboarding being a great example. Yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so like those three elements kind of go to creating this, this, this really special relationship. We then have worked with a, another company called Mindprover, who have spent a lot of time um, bringing kind of a psychophysiological kind of um, element to kind of research. So essentially a fancy name for putting sensors on people's hands, like measuring a galvanic skin response uh, when they're watching advertising, but at the same time asking them sort of very rational questions too. So you're capturing yeah. kind of both this emotional yeah. and, 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 and rational piece. And so what, what we were trying to understand is like the level of emotional engagement in the programming and how that carries over across into the content. And, 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 and what we found, one of the most surprising statistics is that 98% of kind of that, that commercial airtime 
is as engaging as the content itself. Is it really? It, exactly. And wow, who would have thought, that, like, our, our assumption is always that, that's like, a it's the ads and people suddenly and instantly, like... I'll go and make the coffee, right, when the ads are playing. Yeah, really? Well, is, yeah. obviously, System 1 know very well, <laughs> we can't turn off our emotions. <laughs> no, true. Yeah. <laughs> like, they're just there. And so when people are emotionally engaged in the programming... Yeah. It, when the commercial break hits, it doesn't suddenly disappear. Yeah. And so they are they are leaned in, they are they are engaged, and so that that carries across into the advertising, which therefore makes the advertising even more effective. And and whatever score you look at, like it, it's heightened by this this increased emotional engagement, and and that's that's driven by a surfacing off the back of the back of kind of like this emotional engagement in the programming. Could, could, could you price media based on the the emotion of the programming around it? Yes. And we yeah. and we really should, and I I think there have been shortcuts that we have probably used, like sort of media heuristics around like positioning break and all this sort yeah. of stuff that like we've kind of made assumptions, but they've, they've not necessarily been born of like genuine sort of research and insight. On top of that, there has been this what I describe as just an awful move uh, towards and funny Cetras Paribus again, but also this this move towards assuming that that, that every impact is the same. And they're just not like the 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 context in which you see it really does matter, and so we have been doing a lot more work to really understand the importance of that context, and then how brands can can really take take ad, ad advantage of it. And so you you you, you see um, like we saw on, on standard ads, we saw like a sixteen percent lift in emotional engagement when when you start to do advertising that like um, uses some, some more elements that we kind of, you know, a little bit more custom, you actually start to see that increase by 26%. So it's just, just you, you can't, there are things that you can deliberately do as an advertiser to kind of capitalize on on that emotional engagement that, yeah. that, that's, that's and is set that, up in certain environments. And is that based on the context of the programming around and the yeah. kind of emotion that's, yeah, that's being created? Totally, totally. Would it vary on which emotion? So if you've got a, a, a crime drama and it ends with it ends with a gra gruesome death. Would it be different to sort of a, a romantic comedy when they get married at the yeah, end? Yeah, I, I, it's, I mean, it's and it's, it's one of the areas that we're, we're we're looking to kind of learn a little bit more around. I, I it, it gets it sometimes other than very crude categorizations, it's actually often hard to categorize an emotion. People can tell you they are feeling something. They just can't really articulate what they're feeling. It's just it's there. And so I, 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 I think if, if, if anything, what, what we've started to understand is just like, it sort of doesn't really matter as much like the type of emotion. It's the fact that I'm feeling it. And, and so when I'm, I'm emotionally primed, I just like, I receive stuff differently. I, my, my senses have changed. I mean, what we also know from some of the work we've done at System One as well is that you pay more attention as well and you remember. Exactly. So it has this, we, we've, we've done this study to see followed up with people afterwards and the stronger the emotion the greater the attention and the memory yes. recall is yes. way higher yes. which again it's, it's funny isn't it it's one of those things that when you think it through it completely makes sense right but it would influence you know where you buy your media and what kind of you know what what, what kind of message you put out and your advertising yes. it has it's, a massive that's, that's totally yeah. it. we sort of intuitively we've sort of known it we've just never really been able to kind of like uh, like give it like, a, understand it, its yeah. full effect, like actually kind of start to understand its scale. It's, it's funny actually, because <laughs> having been kind of client side 25 years in my career and then ends up working in a, in a research agency, which is quite different, you know, for me, but it, I've spent the last four years discovering the scientific evidence for what I knew before. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah that's like, exactly. Oh yeah, 
yeah. So what I always knew was <laughs> quite right. But, but now I've got this book, you know, it's yeah, like, I've got this, this data point, you know. It's quite funny. That's, that's, that's funny. And I, I, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's true. I mean, we, we, I, I sit on top of an, an insights and research group and, and a lot of what, what I'm trying to do, have them do is like understand that like there's, there are things that we sort of intuitively know but actually, the real insight comes from like really understanding it and yeah. categorizing it and quantifying yeah. it and all that sort of stuff. Now, let's talk about who's on screen as well, because who's on screen also makes a difference, doesn't it, to the emotional engagement? And I know you've done some work on audience representation as well. So, talk to me about what understanding you have of representation in advertising. Yeah. So, we, we, there's some t- two bits of work that we have done, or amongst many, that really started to build. And one of the areas that we've been looking at is like identity, um, and so. People's identity is, it's, you know, it, it's, it's not just, it's multifaceted. So it's not just one thing. You know, there are various elements of, that, that come together to make up their identity. We've also, like, realised that actually it's, it's, it's fluid and context-specific. So depending on where you are, for example, I was never British until I found myself in New York and suddenly it became part of my identity. And so there is a context-specific nature to, to it. But also probably one of the most important things is, is that we are actually curious Culturally, I think we found that like something about like 93% of people are interested in learning about cultures other than their own, and which is new. So when I was growing up, my mum used to make packed lunch for me. Uh, I'd open it up in school and everyone would be like, ugh, stinks. What is that? That's horrible. <laughs> and all I wanted was like to have some jam sandwiches like everyone else. Fast forward, my kid takes interesting ethnic food for school lunch. Everyone's like, oh, can I try it? Can I try it? And that's just cultural curiosity yeah. in action. Yeah. And so we, 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 we have this desire to learn about cultures that aren't our own, uh, which means that we as a media owner have a big part to play in like satisfying that, that curiosity. But also brands, I think 67% of consumers kind of go, I expect brands to help me satisfy that, 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 that curiosity. And so then you kind of go, okay, so then what does that mean for, for the advertising, and this is where kind of representation becomes really important. Like people go, I, I want to see myself, my community, people like me kind of on screen. Uh, we have spent a lot of time understanding what that means for for advertising, but as, as well as programming. We came up with a thing called what we've called the, the representation hierarchy. So it, it starts to look at, at representation, but, but at, at different levels and, and, and what that means. So it starts... At the at the bottom, it's about presence and about like seeing seeing people like 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 me. It then goes up to cultural signifiers. Now I want to see things that represent my culture. These little things that like are very specific to my culture, the music, the situation, all that sort of stuff. Then there's empowerment. So I, I want I want to see like my culture, my people uplifted and see us in situations that are beyond stereotypes. Like, you know, it's, it's it's about uplifting us. And then there's like full integration at the top. So now I want like fully the full kind of richness of my culture, fully uh, in, interweaved into, in, in, into the story. And so as you go up the hierarchy, the impact kind of increases. And so there's at the base level of presence, people go, I want to see myself. For certain groups, that's more important. So we found that yeah. Asians, it's just because yeah. the lack of representation meant that actually I want to see more of it. Yeah. Same with certain disabilities. Yeah. But black consumers kind of actually expect a lot more. I was actually speaking to one of the writers for New Amsterdam and she talked about putting a Trinidadian beer into a barbershop scene. And, and so what's fascinating is like, it's a scene set in a barbershop with these black men. So you've got like presence ticked off. But like the, the Trinidadian beer that they were drinking and referencing 
you'd only know if you lived in Trinidad. Like, it's super specific. She was like, I got letters from people going, thank you for, I felt seen and recognised. That, like, that's such a, like, and, and I'm like, it, it, it didn't really matter if you got the reference or not because the scene still worked. But because she'd kind of gone beyond just presence to sort of some of these cultural signifiers, it had a greater impact. And so I'm always like, for, for advertisers, there are these, I want a better word, Easter eggs that you can put in that actually have this huge outsized impact because you, people feel seen. I oh, so funny. You give me a little fla- weird flashback, actually. So I, I, at university, I lived with a Nigerian and a Ghanaian and an Indian, right? And uh, we actually lived over a barbershop, a British, ah. a British barbershop, <laughs> yeah, right? not an Afro-Caribbean one, which is quite important. I remember saying to Kayende, what? why are you travelling 20 minutes? <laughs> we live over a barbershop. <laughs> they literally fell about laughing at me. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, it's like, but it's what you say, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's that cultural understanding. And it's funny because actually yeah. it's, I, I, uh, I, I didn't really care about the race of my barber. But I needed to see, yes. the, you know, those pictures yes. they used to have in the barbershop. Yes. I'm like, I want to see my haircut. Yeah. yeah. Like if, if yeah. you show me like yeah. black models, I'm like, yeah. okay, you get it. You, you understand. Get it. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's brilliant. No. I mean, there's, there's some lovely echoes with the System One data, actually, which is brilliant. So in fact, you use the word feeling seen, which was amazing. And, and one of the things we uh, wanted to understand is how do other people feel when they see different cultures represented? Because, you know, I, I noticed some nervousness with some advertisers going, well, if I'm going to you know, in the niche kind of Trinidadian, you know, uh, barbershop scene, you think, well, what's everyone else going to think? You know, they feel excluded. But the amazing thing we found in our study actually is that diverse advertising unites us as long as you tell the story well. And so it's interesting. I'll just go and quote some of the stats that we found. So we, we tested 98 ads in the US. And we looked at how diverse advertising compares to uh, non-diverse advertising, for want of a better word, right? And what was amazing is in, in, 90, in the 98 ads we tested, 37 saw a statistically significant improvement of half a star, so on our five-star rating. 20 saw a drop. So it's, it wasn't quite – it's interesting. We did it in the US and the UK. In the UK, everything went up but from a lower base. Now, this is what the interesting thing in the US is, that diverse advertising all perform better versus non-diverse. So even, so one of the questions we got asked is, um, well, okay, we get that, John, but maybe just progressive advertisers are the better advertisers. They tend to do more of the diverse advertising and that's why it's better. So are you sure it's a diversity? So this is what we did. We took all Apple advertising, non-diverse versus diverse. The average star score was two for non-diverse. Apple, very obviously very capable advertiser, 3.8 for their diverse advertising. So even taking, you know, a very uh, big advertiser, Coke from 2.9 to 3.9, Nike from 2.5 to 3.6. So in, even with massive advertising, in every case, there was an uplift. But the thing we found is that when you show diverse advertising to the audience represented, not only does everyone else also enjoy it, but the audience represented because they feel it, feel seen, you just see this massive boost in happiness on our kind of face trace. And the thing that really stood out, actually, which, which was a, a bit of a, oh, of course, is when, when we ask people how they feel, we ask them to tell us how intense the emotion is, right? So, you know, on a scale, is, is, is it just a, a minor, you know, is it a strong emotion? And it's a strength of feeling. That's what it is because, you know, I, mean, I remember um, Addie Rawcliffe at ITV who we did the original study with. You know, we, we were watching um, 
an ad with a pregnant black woman in now, you know, and she's, you know, pregnant. Sorry, not to say she's pregnant. Sorry. She's a, she's a black mother of three. So obviously, you know, it, it had, had been pregnant. She was a pregnant woman who did it anyway. But she was just, I've never seen a pregnant black woman in an ad before. And it, it just was, so I felt emotional watching the ad, but she just felt it more. Yeah. And that that's... was the thing, you know, but, but it's certainly not divisive. It's like, we, we found that in every case, oh, as long as it's well done, yeah, yeah. Caveat. Yeah, it still yeah. has to be good advertising. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Make a good ad. Yeah. And then, you know, you see this kind of, we call it diversity dividends, you know, but this sort of I, yeah. payoff that, that, that happens. That, yeah. That is, yeah. So the exact same thing we see in that hierarchy it is as you, like, as, as you go from just seeing people to like, actually, now we're going to break some of the stereotypes. Now we're going to like new situations to start to show the, yeah. the full breadth of the experience. Yeah. You, the, the rewards just increase. Yeah. Which advertisers do you think, or are there any campaigns that come to mind that you think, Actually, they're really getting this this stuff right. On the whole, I've actually been infused by just see. I see a lot more that I think is getting it right. I mean, there's obviously a few few standouts. I I, I love all the work, but just as a consistency around sort of some of the Fenty work, uh, Fenty Beauty, Fenty Savage, like just it. it um, and, and we saw it in, in in a lot of the research that we did. People kind of like spontaneously talk about the diversity of of the models. Disability is recognised. There's mi- mixed race models as well. It like it, um, but it, it never feels forced. It's just a, the way in which the brand behaves. So there's just this simplicity and ease to which it, it does it that that I think people people really really like. There was some. I remember there was some work around from Adobe. I think it was. Oh, is that uh, when I see black? Yes. That one. Yes. When I see black. Yes. In fact, actually, interesting statistic on that. That had the biggest diversity dividend of anyone really? in the so, Yeah. So it was two point. I think it's two point five uh, for general population. So that was right in the middle of our scoring system. Yeah. It went five point nine if you were black because yes. it really triggered something positively. You know, in terms of yes, yeah, I get it. You know, this idea because <laughs> you know? it's like. Do I do, black sports people I see it all the time? Yeah, black creators yeah. which no exist, never see. Yeah. And so suddenly yes. that's exactly it like is, okay. Now is. I'm starting to like yeah. really. And there is there is that novelty thing that's really important. I, I don't mean novelty in a negative sense, but I mean you know you talked about before the uplift depending on whether you normally see yourself. So we mm. sound the same thing. Asians very underrepresented. Yes, and yes. when they see themselves massive dividends yeah. and and i think the the thing that we're picking up at the moment is disability that's where we need to be leaning into because again massively underrepresented in it and there's amazing um i think it's mastercard ad blind woman in this ad. It just it was incredible and they'd actually designed the ad for a blind person and then suddenly when you watch it you go of course, you know that. You know it, it allows you to see what barriers they must be facing. But even the advertising, the fact that it, and you know, and now we see the logo, and now you see the, you know, the little card, and it talks you through the whole ad as you as you watch it. It's, it's quite, quite powerful. Actually, that, that, that I know that campaign. That is a great example. It, it's actually something I tell people to do. So I'm like part of what the neighbors do that sort of good work. You just need to like be empathetic. And so what, what's interesting is if you, if you spend any time like watching a movie, but with the audio descriptions on, you suddenly realize, oh, all the stuff that I just take in visually, like has to be explained and walked through. So straight away, you're like, okay, now I'm getting like a sense of to nav- not just navigating, but simply just how to navigate a movie and the differences that are required. And, and just that, that alone just ups the empathy just a little bit. Well, I think I think empathy is probably one of the most important skills, isn't it? Or, or, or not skill, but important thing to it's, have. It's funny as a you should marketer, say skill because I, yeah. I actually I've been talking about it as a muscle. Like yes. so, we we, yes. we we all have it, 
we choose to bring it to bear or not, depending on the situation. What, what I'm always encouraging people to do is like, you have to be very deliberate about it. And so, you know, we will train soldiers to park their empathy. Otherwise, you can't literally go into a battlefield and do what's necessary. But for others, it's really important that you lean into it and open it up. And I think for marketeers, it's a muscle that like, whether you're an advertiser, or a client, like agency, a client, you have to develop that muscle. And I think it's something that I know, having worked in this thing, seen work, it, it's really struck me. I mean, I, I think I was telling you before, we did a disability version of this, and, and it, it, it was probably the most humbled mm. I think I've ever been, mm. and, and aware of the advantages I have, you know, mm. sort of thing. And, it, and it's quite striking. Obviously, it's quite visible, but, but when you start to hear just the everyday things that you and I would take for granted and how difficult they are for other people, yeah. I think that empathy is just... Although so, I, I always have to remind people that it's different to sympathy because actually what, what I hear is people kind of confuse it. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, if you, see, if you see a starving child on TV, you might want to contribute to that charity because you feel sorry for them, but you don't suddenly feel hungry. If you feel hungry, that would be empathy. What you're actually feeling is sympathy. Yeah. And, and so the empathy bit is when you, you literally feel the pain. Yeah. Um, and, and, and sometimes we do it naturally. If I see someone stub their toe, I'm like, ooh. And that's empathy. We just like need to like yeah. learn how to like yeah. totally you, you need to feel it, don't you? Feel it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rather, yeah. To feel. rather than observe it. Yeah, emotions brilliant. again. Indeed. Well, back to emotions, yeah. Well, that's probably a perfect place actually to round off. And uh, uh, thank you, Yusuf. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to this episode of Uncensored CMO. If you'd like to find out more, then please do subscribe. Wherever you get your podcasts, hit the subscribe button. You can also do that over on YouTube. If you'd like to follow me, do that at John Evans over on LinkedIn or Uncensored CMO.